Chapter 11 Otto didn't dare to look at the dog, but he could feel its menace as it drew closer. By the shape of the growl, he imagined the size of its teeth. In his mind, it was a beast with a snarling mouth, hanging with spittle, and small red eyes. As it started to bark, the picture in Otto's mind took on a more muscular form. The bark itself was ferocious. It was accompanied by a higher, more shrill noise, which was nasty and frenzied. His automaton reminded him not to look around, no matter what. The mysterious man, who must have been holding on to the dog's leash, had so far said nothing. Otto couldn't imagine his assassin's face, but that only intensified his fear. Jacob, he called, knocking on the door again. Open up. He pushed at the door, which rattled against its lock. He was repulsed by the idea that the dog's saliva might splatter his new overcoat. Press a doorbell, he cried out to his son. A single question troubled him, but he refused to contemplate it. To do so would have overwhelmed him. Not only did he dismiss the notion that his son had led him into this trap, he hadn't yet dared to articulate the obvious conclusion that this must be the moment when the prophecy of the mysterious man with the menacing dog comes true. It seemed there was no escape from the predicament he was in. The door didn't buzz open. The dog was about to become bellicose. Otto could feel its violent presence so close now that each bark sent up a surge of foul air. He knew he shouldn't look, but he imagined the animal straining at the leash. Seconds felt like minutes. As if it was the reasonable thing to do, Otto kept knocking at the door. The knocking was automatic and senseless. He didn't even know he was doing it anymore. His automaton kept telling him not to look around. Don't look into the eyes of the beast, it said. It mentioned that his son Jacob seemed to want him to pass from this life in an agonizing way. When Otto heard his automaton say that, he leaned his head against the blackness of the door. There was more than a tinge of sadness in this. He fixed his gaze on a slither of light reflecting on the door's surface. By staring at what was hardly a glint, he was able to determine that the door was in fact green. When the man spoke, it had a startling effect, wrenching Otto's attention back to what was going on. At last, Cerberus, the man said, your time has come. This quiet voice nearby only served to increase the frequency and penetration of the dog's barking, which by now had engulfed the courtyard. Some quiet part of Otto's brain was able to surmise that the person had spoken with a foreign roll of the tongue, and probably went by the name of Bartek Novak. There was nothing for it. Despite everything, he turned to face his enemy. Keeping his eyes firmly shut, he took a blind step forward. The dog became apoplectic. 
Yet the deluded automaton continued to reassure Otto that he wouldn't be hurt unless he looked into its eyes. This may have been a risky folkloric take on what had been foretold, but Otto felt he had no alternative now but to rely on it. Your dog appears to be hungry, Mr. Novak, he said at last. As soon as he said it, he grinned, which may have looked peculiar to the dog and its owner, grinning with your eyes closed. Although Otto was prepared to depart this life peacefully, he couldn't believe that his last words had been so offbeat. As if the whole world could grin with him, one of the top floor flat windows opened with a creak and the courtyard was filled with the strains of an 18th century opera, Orfeo and Eurydice. Otto was back in the moment, but he had the presence of mind to keep his eyes shut. Over the dog's polyphonic aggression, he could begin to appreciate the musical setting provided by an aria called Che Fiero Momento. A lilting soprano lead filled his ears and made him want to look at his antagonists. Before he was able to make this mistake, a new sound echoed around the courtyard. It was the indignant voice of an opera lover. Do you mind? the man shouted. Do you care about anything? Or do you imagine you're alone in the world? For a few bars of Che Fiero Momento, the good resident upstairs fell silent. Before anything else could be said, he let his beloved music underscore his rhetorical interrogation of the people and their dog below. The dog had begun to whimper. The threat seemed to be receding. Otto was keeping his eyes shut, but he imagined a hand yanking at the leash. He imagined the man and the dog slipping into the shadows. When the top floor window slammed again, muffling the music, he tensed his muscles and squinted. He couldn't see his antagonists anywhere, but he heard the double door buzz open. He stepped into the street and pulled the door too. He made sure it was firmly locked. There was no traffic. There were no pedestrians. Jacob was standing to one side, pallid in the streetlight. Otto wasn't able to breathe yet. His son seemed to be wringing his hands. Tell me you're not hurt, he said. I heard the barking. Slumping against the door, masking the swastika that had been carved there, Otto unbuttoned his overcoat. Until now, he hadn't been aware how soaked through his shirt was. When he finally exhaled, his breath was thick with condensation. Rather than look at his son, he looked at his shoes. He found his shoes fascinating. He filled them each day. In return, they took him places. They'd taken him to the airport. They'd taken him to his hotel. They'd taken him to the Spitzenhof Café. Tonight, they'd taken him straight into a courtyard. Perhaps this notion that his shoes took him places made it possible for Otto to excuse himself for going along. It was snowing more heavily. Each flake melted as it hit the pavement around his shoes. 
Jacob had taken a few tentative steps towards him. He could see his son's shadow creeping up. The plea in Jacob's voice grated. I was trying to get one of the residents to open the door, he was saying. But would they? Otto shook his head. No, they wouldn't. I told them how you were locked in, he was saying. I suppose someone must have believed me in the end. Otto nodded. Yes, they must have. What happened? Jacob asked. He was standing too close now. The question was enough to make Otto glance up. He met his son's gaze. You tell me, Otto said. What do you mean? Otto checked his wristwatch. Another forty minutes to go before midnight. Put yourself in my shoes, he said. What do you think I mean? I'm not sure what you're trying to get at, Jacob said. He may have sounded astonished and even wounded, but Otto was sure he could detect contempt in his son's voice as well. He felt himself leaping to all kinds of conclusions. He sensed that he'd already made his mind up about most of them. The case against his son may have been circumstantial, yet it was enough for any prosecutor in England to seek a conviction. Although he knew there would be an appeal, Otto had already found his son guilty. Lifting himself from the double door, only narrowly avoiding bumping into the defendant, he began walking in the direction they'd come from. Jacob kept up with long, easy strides. I don't know what's got into you, he was saying. It's not as if I did anything. We were chatting nicely, then you walked into the courtyard. I don't even know why. Otto pressed ahead, as silent as the snowfall. He was feeling better for saying nothing at all. His mind raced in a hot rush, made of flashbacks of the dog, the voice of the man holding the leash, and his own actions leading up to the point when he'd entered the courtyard. Like a dance between each footstep, Otto played these notes over and over, while to the world he remained tight-lipped. There were other flashbacks, too. The opera lover coming to the rescue, the wonder that his prophecy about being attacked by a dog had actually come true, a rekindled curiosity about what this might mean and if it meant that Marie would still be in his room by midnight. What have I done? Jacob asked. He was flapping around Otto like a bird of prey. Otto had barely given voice to the assumption that his son had conspired to murder him or cause him serious injury, and yet the boy's denials were already vehement. Jacob had guessed that his father's brooding silence amounted to an accusation. Feeling forced into a formal cross-examination of his son, Otto finally stopped and turned. You shut the door to the courtyard, didn't you? That's ridiculous. Who shut it then? You did, of course. That's not how it happened, is it? You walked in. You shut the door. So this was going to be Jacob's defense. Otto had already searched his brain and told himself he was sure that he had not shut the door behind him. But he had walked in. There was no denying that, unless his shoes had taken him in. The facts, as he understood them now, made him less than sure about what had happened at the door. It cast just enough doubt on his son's conviction to have it quashed. 
Once again, he fell silent. He began to walk more slowly. He still wanted to blame Jacob, so he clung to other prejudices. He even felt he understood why Izzy had been so desperate to escape. Jacob was too calm. He was conniving. He was a skilled liar. He thrived on being close to his enemies. By the time they were walking back through Heldenplatz, Otto had rebuttoned his overcoat. He'd turned up the collar. Both hands were thrust into his pockets. His hair and shoulders were smothered in melting snowflakes. By comparison to Otto's, Jacob's mood was light. He seemed to have forgotten all about his devilish plans. It had been pleasant, he said, getting to know his father. He suggested they should stop at a bar. He wanted to drink a toast to their future. He seemed anxious to please and reached out as if to touch Otto's arm. Although the gesture was more meaningful than anything Jacob had said throughout their long walk, Otto managed to avoid the offer of contact. He explained that it wasn't a good time for him. Perhaps they could meet the following day. He knew he would have to confront Jacob properly, but not now, not so close to midnight. Jacob persisted with his efforts at reconciliation. He said he knew a bar just around the corner. It wouldn't take long to down one or two tumblers of schnapps. He loped forwards a few paces to stand in Otto's way. He had his hands out as if to catch his oncoming father. It seemed pointless to walk around him, but that's what Otto tried to do. You aren't still upset with me, are you? Jacob asked. The question brought Otto to a standstill. You seem troubled by something, Jacob said. What did you do to Izzy? Otto asked. Is that what this is about? I suppose so. Jacob's pleasant manner suddenly cracked. The mention of his sister changed him. From Otto's perspective, it was as if the animus had finally been unleashed. She's sick, Jacob said. She's more than that. She, she's dead. She's a zombie. She got herself hooked on drugs. So I called her out. That's what I did to her. Not in my house, I said. Get out, I said. And take your filthy boyfriend with you. That's what I did. And as for you, as for you, I'll tell you something too. Don't think you're some kind of hero back in the fatherland to save us all from ourselves. Jacob's jaw was so clenched that his cheeks were trembling. His pale coloring had become florid. His eyes were bulging. As if he couldn't bear to be in Otto's presence a minute longer, he turned and stomped away. Otto wasn't sure what to make of it. He checked his wristwatch. It was twelve minutes to midnight. He looked up the street. All that mattered now was the prophecy. As he marched on, it occurred to him illogically that if he got to his room any later than midnight, Marie would be under no obligation to have anything to do with him. He broke into a trot. He was unused to exertion and was already panting after just a few strides, but he stuck at his pace. Before the clock struck twelve, it was imperative he should be in his room. He stumbled in the snow more than once 
but he made it to the hotel with a few minutes to spare. When he bundled through the revolving doors, wheezing like a smoker, the receptionist glanced up. She recognized him. She was the member of staff who'd rescued him from the lift earlier. As soon as she saw him, she raised her hand. It looked as if she wanted to say something other than, Good night, Mr. Lozer. Waving back at her, but shaking his head, Otto ran dripping wet through the lobby and managed to get straight into a lift. The receptionist appeared in front of the sliding doors. Her hand was still raised. He was on his way up. He looked at his wristwatch. One minute to go. He was out of breath. He counted two pants per second before he looked at himself in the mirror and smiled stupidly. He didn't care that his body felt limp or that his hair was tousled and wet. His stupid smile faded, though, as he wondered if it mattered that his watch might not be accurate. The Whispered Plot Anton was so thrilled by the chase, he forgot to pick up the scent. Belting along with the exuberance of an Irish drinking song, he let out a chorus of howls and hoots. He loved the game he was playing. He savored his barks. It was as if there were no limits to what he could do. But the passage was long, and there was only so much interest a dog could take in itself. As the passage grew narrower, more rocks and boulders got in the way. There was still nothing to see, but Anton felt each new hardness as he lurched into it. When it became impossible to rush any more, he slowed and began to use his nose. No matter how much he sniffed, the whiff of the Frenchman's shoe eluded him. There was something more compelling in the air now. It was a mixture of pungency and mintiness, begging to be urinated on. The passage was colder. It was greener. Towards its opening, it was barely wide enough to crawl along. The greenness loomed unexpectedly until it was overwhelming, and Anton found himself scrambling through leaves and branches. He was on a steep slope, smothered in bushes and vines, and speckled with trees. There were so many hardy perennials to choose from that in his confusion Anton lifted his hind leg indiscriminately. For a long and pleasurable moment, the puffs of steam conveying his marker rose around him. Accompanying the first flashes of a sunrise was a feeling of bliss he hadn't known since being alive. An ungainly dog with tusks, which was in fact a wild boar, stepped up and grunted. The grunt meant, this is my turf, and was a preliminary indication that the creature was not well disposed towards Anton. It added a huff to emphasize its hostility, then lowered its head and charged. Anton barked, and the wild boar keeled over dead. There was no magic about this. The first arrow had struck it from behind, it was followed by a volley that tore through the undergrowth, plunging more arrows into the charging brute. It fell on its side, close to where Anton had only just finished doing his business.
the silence was worth sniffing at. Because the air was so chilly, Anton couldn't detect much yet, other than the faintest twist of scorched carbon, as if something might be burning nearby. There was a clearing in the direction the smell was coming from, just a few leaps from the hole in the hillside where the dog had popped out. He saw nothing unusual about the clearing, but his ears pricked up sharply when he heard the heave-ho of humans approaching it. There were two of them, staggering along, hefting between them a large black cauldron. They were dressed in doublets made of a coarse material. They had thick brown stockings on. Having placed their burden in the middle of the clearing, they set about gathering wood to make a pyre. At that moment, the scent of cold stew collided with Anton's nose, ensuring that for as long as the cauldron stood where it was, he would hardly be able to take his eyes off it. It was the sound of clopping hooves that drew his attention away from the cauldron, and now he saw the flame that had been the source of the burning smell. A fire was bobbing up the slope. A third human on a horse leapt into the clearing. This one seemed disdainful of the others, carrying his torch casually and slightly tilted. His green doublet was cut from suede. The buttons glinted as they caught the morning sun. Other floppy-hatted riders trotted into the clearing behind him. By comparison to their leader, these humans were more disgruntled than disdainful. Strapped to their saddles were heavy packages containing everything required for merriment in the forest. There were tasty morsels preserved in brine, game pies, sweetmeats, stacks of pillows and blankets, and plenty of mead in wooden barrels. The cauldron heavers backed away, bowing low as the torchbearer rode into the middle of the clearing. He tossed his torch over the pyre. It was the month of August, and the wood was dry, so the blaze took quickly. When he was satisfied that the fire was ready to cook on, he gestured to the cauldron heavers, and they heaved their stewy smells onto the flames. Soon the contents began to bubble and fume. Anton salivated longingly. His tongue slapped his chops. Next to him, the recently dispatched boar had begun to ooze, which made his mouth gurgle all the more. The situation required some tact. He produced a tentative woof. All the men in the clearing looked up, but they didn't look in the dog's direction. Someone else had walked into the clearing disguised as a bush. One moment the bush was motionless, the next moment it was roaring like a drunkard. It was apparent that the roaring was meant to be laughter and that the human laughing expected everyone else to join in. He was tall, with traces of a youthful and handsome face, yet one that had become blotchy and bleary-eyed. He held a crossbow in the crook of his arm. Other similarly disguised eminences crept out of the forest, all of them laughing at precisely the measure and volume of the young man who had come out first. The servants in the clearing had prostrated themselves. Along with his band of horsemen, the torch-bearer had leapt to the ground and was making obsequious gestures. Your Majesty, Anton heard the torch-bearer say, perhaps a modest repast for you and your guests? 
The young man stopped roaring and took a moment to survey the bubbling cauldron. He put his arm around a thick-set bush with an inflamed red nose who was staggering around nearby but trying to stand still. They looked at each other, then back at the offending cauldron. Even through their bushy faces, their disgust was undisguised. There was nothing about the prospect of a modest repast that seemed to please either of them. It was the king who spoke first. He said, Hereby. All of the bushes, all of the horsemen, and all of the servants scanned their surroundings. Every so often, someone would shout, Hereby. Soon, each pair of eyes was trained on exactly the spot where Anton sat on his hind legs. Sensing that he had better do something, he slipped his tail between his legs and slunk into the clearing. He hoped to ingratiate himself so that he might beg for leftovers later. Yet, as soon as he emerged from his hiding spot, all of the humans, including the king and his unsteady companion, stopped saying hereby and stared at Anton. The only sound was the juiciness bubbling away in the cauldron. The king said, Goodbye. He sniggered then. All of the rest nodded and sniggered along with pleasure. The bushes especially seemed to be of a friendly bent, if a little merry for the time of day. The king still had his arm around a rogue known as Silenus the Unsightly. Silenus beckoned to one of the servants and burped loudly before he called for more mead. He tore at his bushy costume, exposing a bulging belly, and declared that if nobody saw to his needs at once, the king himself, who was still resting on his shoulders, would collapse. Wishing to make a display of supplication, Anton rolled onto his back and kicked his legs in the air. Pointing and laughing, the king rounded on Silenus. He spoke for all to hear. You see, my lord, how the dog speaks true. No need, it says, of warmed-up broth when there is a more succulent bite to throw on our flames. Anton rolled over and stood on all fours. He didn't like the way the king and his rotund friend were staring at him. When a couple of servants drew their daggers and began to slouch towards him, he leaned low on his legs and growled. Before he could clamp his jaws around the ankle of one of the oncomers, they passed him and climbed up the slope. To the cheers of the rest, they dragged the dead boar into the clearing. The cauldron was removed from the fire, and a spit was constructed to roast the king's butchered quarry with. To his astonishment, Anton was not only fed, he was fated as a royal personage. A pillow was placed on the ground for him, alongside a platter of steaming cuts glazed with honey. Although he much preferred the name Cerberus, he didn't mind being called Argos by his new friends. The king and Lord Silenus could jest all they liked. Whenever Anton so much as let his tongue hang out, his goblet would be refilled and another slice of roasted boar would be served onto his pewter platter. Other dogs may have felt wary of being treated with so much deference. They may have wondered what the catch was, but Anton took to it graciously 
and ignored those among the king's retinue who eyed him with deep suspicion. If I linger on this hunting anecdote, it is to confirm that the new ruler of Gordian had chosen a mongrel to be his trusted advisor. The consequences for Anton were not as favorable as he was at first inclined to believe. To the dismay of the court, it appeared that Midas the Magnificent was playing a joke on everyone. Not only had he dignified Anton with the ancient name of Argos, he'd conferred upon the dog the title of Baron. In the fired-up constructions of Anton's imagination, this medieval manifestation of a king called Midas would go on to interpret everything the dog called Argos did. If the animal wagged its tail, the king would smile upon his subjects. On the rare occasion when Anton appeared apathetic, Midas would find something to be disgruntled about and order an execution or two to alleviate the mood. You may be forgiven for asking fundamental questions about the state of Anton's mind, which was clearly well adrift by now. You may suspect that he'd forgotten about his quest to discover how the end of his book went. It was as if he'd even forgotten his love for Oksana. Let me temper your concerns with some of my own. Forgetting is not the same as not having the memory in the first place. Anton may have been a lowly stray, but his memories had not vanished. Rather, it was as if he'd sent himself those important messages in a bottle, and the bottle hadn't yet made landfall. It has to be admitted that the time it was taking for Anton's bottle to reach him was a time of immense confusion. It is something, I discovered, that no quest can be without. Even though the writer had turned into a dog in hell, his longings were still perfectly intact. It is important to add that they were also heavily entangled, first by the myth of Prometheus, then by the myth of Gordius, and now it was the myth of Midas. What Anton thought he was doing in a remote mountain kingdom in the Middle Ages is hard to say. We can only guess what purpose he had in proceeding with his own quest during the year of our Lord, 583. I suppose in his dog-centric brain, the things that happened mythologically could have happened at any time in history. Nor was he failing to use the infinite possibilities of the unseen as he plotted my downfall. I'd already tied the knot of unhappiness so that it could never be undone. In chapter 12, the unpleasantness in Vienna would only deepen, and it was all because of the money I had. Yet, the truth is, the strings pulling me along were also pulling Anton along. Had he turned himself into a butterfly or a cloud instead, I expect the connections between us might have been looser. They may even have frayed and snapped. But Anton's fate was to become a dog, and one of the finest qualities dogs have is their tenacity. As far as the whispers were concerned, the baronial ennoblement of the dog called Argos and his appointment as senior advisor to the king was yet another manifestation of the chaos Midas the Magnificent was intent on doling out. 
The king's attachment to the rogue Silenus had already tested the good people of Gordian. Since the coronation, Midas and Silenus had been trying to outfeast one another. Which gutter Silenus had been dragged from, nobody knew. But the two of them were by now inseparable, a bawdy pair stewing themselves in mead. The whispers had it that Midas was being pursued by his guilty conscience. It was an open secret that he'd murdered his father by strangulation. He might have availed himself of the opportunity to repent. The one true faith had only recently come to the mountain region, formerly overrun by Ostrogoths. Yet, as a means of forgetting his sins, Midas had chosen to ferment himself instead. So the whispers went. What was worse, his degeneracy was being forever coaxed by the ghastly Silenus. Constantly inebriated, the new king's style of autocracy was more ruinous than was customary, even for Gordian. After he'd entombed his miserable father, his first act as incumbent had been to cause the old king's final, most undoable knot to be displayed in the town square for all to see. What came to be known as the Gordian knot was a tight note of twine the size of a man's head. Even Queen Sibylle hadn't been able to take it apart. As if it was a failing she had, the queen had objected strongly to the knot being displayed so publicly. She harangued her son about it. Fed up with her nagging, Midas's second act as ruler of Gordian was to have his mother locked up. He and Silenus were finishing off a barrel of mead when they penned this royal decree. It determined that Sibylle was to be imprisoned in a tower forevermore, on pain of having tongues and other body parts forcibly removed, no subject of the kingdom would be permitted to speak with her ever again. The queen would spend the rest of her days confined to her apartments with only her marionettes to keep her company. But the whispers were nothing if not inventive. They had it that the queen did magic with her puppets. By means of their manipulation, she could orchestrate her desires. She made them into the likenesses of those she wished to enchant. With demonic skills, she walked her likenesses through the deeds she required them to perform. In this way, so the whispers went, Queen Sibylle had not only been able to make her son garrot King Gordius, using a length of his own rope while he lay in his bed, but she had driven her son thereafter into an orgy of eating and drinking, spurred on by Silenus the unsightly. Taking on a dog as trusted advisor only meant there was more to be whispered about. Anton had gone on to be given the freedom of Gordian. He could go as he pleased and pass urine where he liked. While all the king's horses and all the king's men were loath to treat him with anything but contempt, they were compelled by the command of their ruler to worship the ground this so-called baron slept on. According to the whispers, this could only have been a drunken scheme, shaped in the grog the king poured down his throat each day with Silenus. In their stupor, he and his friend treated their foundling as especially wise. 
they dressed the dog in the finest garments. They conceived of the most difficult questions about politicking. Anton could only ever bark his replies, which is exactly what the drunks were listening for, and their laughter grated all the more round the corridors of the mountaintop fortress. For a time, Gordian seemed to brood. The whispers could only wonder when the feeling of being so pent up would finally be unleashed. Then, one day, it came to be known that a royal portrait had been commissioned. It seemed that the king was being painted with Silenus by his side. Each morning, Midas would appear seated on his throne, with Argos on his lap, actually patting the dog on the head, while Silenus hovered over the king's shoulder, staring belligerently into the distance. Having already petitioned and pleaded with their ruler to curb his perversions, a few patriotic nobles considered this latest pitiable development concerning the royal portrait to be downright objectionable. A plot was hatched, not only against the king, but against those closest to him. It was decided that slurry Silenus needed to suffer slowly in death. The plotters had the king's witch of a mother in mind as well. She was the culprit after all, making all of it happen by pulling on the strings of her puppets. Sibylle, so the plotters believed, had cast a curse over Gordian that only her death would undo. In marrying the old king, she'd prepared her curse. In giving birth to Midas, she'd spawned it. No doubt she was scheming in her quarters even now, inventing fresh and more disastrous scenarios for her puppets to play out in Gordian. It was apparent to one and all that the queen must die along with her son. After that, they would see to it that the Baron got what was coming to him. <laughs>